Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode one. Actually, we're going to say this is section one, part one of our Grace for the Afflicted, a clinical and biblical perspective on mental illness by Matthew S. Stanford. Um, this is a book that I found that um, when I started reading it, I decided that I really wanted to turn it into a series uh, or a study that we can go over together. And so uh, this is the perfect opportunity, in my opinion. Something we're going to do on this podcast is we're always going to have some kind of book series or something going on along with our regularly um, regular episodes that we have. And this is what we wanted to start out with first. I am reading and all of my information is coming from a book, this book by Matthew S. Stanford. You can find it on Amazon. You can find it just about anywhere. So, Grace for the Afflicted um, is written to educate Christians about mental illness from both a biblical and scientific perspective. Um, Mr. Stanford presents insights into our physical and spiritual nature and discusses the appropriate role of psychology and psychiatry in the life of a believer. Describing common mental disorders, um, Stanford probes what science says and what the Bible says about each illness. And these are what we're going to be specifically going over there. And there's going to be one I'm going to mess up really bad. But anyways, you'll see what I'm talking about. We're going to be going over bipolar disorders, trauma and stressor related disorders, dementia. This is the word I'm going to mess up. Cerebrovascular accidents. I probably butchered that, but it's strokes, um, traumatic brain injury, suicide, a holistic approach to recovery and mental health in the church. My goal for this study is to help open the eyes of many people, not just people who do not understand, but everyone. No matter what you have gone through, there is a way out. And hopefully by reading this book and studying, you and I both can find ways to approach recovery with God and science. That is the goal. So into chapter one, psychology, psychiatry, and faith, uh, fearfully and wonderfully made. We're going to start by reading Job 33 and 4. The spirit of God has made me and the breath of the almighty gives me life. The scripture tells us that in Christ, we have everything we need for life and godliness, correct? So you, so can you explain to me why Anna's bipolar disorder and her dependence on medication is not an issue of weak faith or sin? In 2 Peter 1.3, everything we need for a godly life, yet even though Anna professed Christ as her Savior, her life was a mixture of family problems, shame, suffering, and strange behavior. How should the church respond to this? Mental illness is a frightening experience, not only for the one who is afflicted, but also for those who witness the individual struggling to control strange thoughts and behaviors. In the United States, one out of every five adults, which is 18.6% of the population, suffer with a mental disorder in a given year. The annual prevalence of mental illness in adolescents 13 to 18 years old is even greater at 21.4%. These numbers have probably changed um, during COVID. I know probably for a fact they have changed during COVID, but I don't have those updated numbers. So the first step in understanding how to effectively minister to and support someone living in mental illness is to recognize how God has created us. This is one of my favorite sections of this whole book that I've um, gone over, but um, we're going to start out with how are we created. Fearfully and wonderfully made, Psalm 139.14. Created in the very image of God in Genesis 1.26, humans are a complex being. Unlike any other living creature, the union of the physical body with the immaterial, non-physical mind and spirit. Jesus himself describes the complexity of the self in Mark 12.30-31. Quoting Deuteronomy 6.5 responds by saying, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, love God with all aspects of your being, your whole self, and through relationships. The four facets of the self clearly outlined in Luke 2.52 describes the development of the young Christ. Luke writes, Jesus kept increasing in wisdom, which is mental, and in stature, which is physical, and in favor with God, spiritual, and with men, relational. 
In the physical, we exist in a physical body so we can interact with the material world around us. We see, hear, taste, smell, and touch the world around us. The processing of sensory information by our brains produces thoughts, feelings, and emotions which then result in some outward behavioral displays. We are God's creative masterpiece, a miracle of skin, bone, and blood formed from the dust of the ground, Genesis 2-7. But at the same time, we are so much more. We reason, we love, and we pray. We're now in the mental section. Are our thoughts, feelings, and emotions merely the product of a neurochemical change in electrical discharges in our brain? Or is our mind something more, more immaterial? Um, more than the sum of our parts. The truth is probably somewhere in the middle. While the functioning of our brain is integral to the existence of our mind, that alone is not sufficient to explain. Similarly, to imagine our mind as a completely separate and unrelated uh, part to the brain doesn't seem to be correct either. Body and mind are intimately connected, each affecting the other. Our sensory receptors are activated by familiar stimuli in the environment and past thoughts and feelings rush to consciousness. We think and choose with our mind. Our mind controls our actions and God changes our mind through the process of sanctification, conforming us ever closer to the image of God in Romans 8:29. A physical body formed by the hands of the maker is in union with the immaterial mind that controls and plans our behavior is a truly miraculous concept, though a difficult one to grasp. So then we move on to the spiritual. It's not uncommon for neuroscientists to talk and debate about the mind. They might use fancy words like consciousness or self-awareness to make it sound more scientific, but they are still talking about an immaterial, invisible aspect of our being. Things that can't be seen make scientists uncomfortable. They admit that they don't understand something presently, but um, qualify that admission by saying that with enough study and continued advancement of science, that one day they, they will, they will understand it. So to describe us as having a spirit in addition to a mind and body seems almost heretical from a scientific perspective. God created us a unity of parts, much like himself. In our inmost being, we are spirit, the very breath of God, placed into a shell um, of dust, Genesis 2-7, Ecclesiastes 12-6-7. That is how we differ from the other living creatures. Both were created from the ground, Genesis 2-7 and 19, but only humanity is created in the image of God, Genesis 1-26. As, as a spirit being, it is impossible. It is possible for us to be in an intimate spiritual union, Proverbs 20, 27, and Romans 8, 15 and 16, through 16, with our Creator, who is also Spirit, John 4, 24. No other living creature, not even the angels, have been given such an opportunity. And now we are in the relational. We were created to be in relationship. God himself said that it is not good for us to be alone in Genesis 2.18. While our first greatest relational need is to know God, we should never underestimate the importance of being in fellowship with other believers. The Bible offers guidance on a variety of relationships, including marriage, see Ephesians 5.22-23, parenting, Psalms 127.3-5, siblings, Proverbs 17.17, Friendships, Proverbs 27, 9, and with those who are not so friendly, Matthew 5, 25. Relationship is one of the reasons why Jesus gave us the church, so that we might be together and never be alone, Acts 2, 42, and 1 John 1, and 7. How have we been affected by the fall? We approach the question Mr. Stanford um, has been asked about Anna. He asked him, his friend who asked the question, do you know anyone who has heart disease and regularly takes medication? He asked him if he was trying to say that Anna's bipolar disorder and heart disease were somehow the same. Throughout this book, he will try to answer the question, how are they the same? How do they differ? But first we need to answer a more foundational question. 
What are the results of human sin on the four aspects of our being? When a follower of Christ is asked the question, they will often quote Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Such a response is correctly points out um, that spiritual death or separation from God is the result of sin. As children of Adam, we are sinful by nature and therefore spiritually dead and are separated from God at birth. Uh, see Romans 5.12. The answer to the question rarely goes beyond the spiritual. Clearly, spiritual death results from our sin. But what about the other aspects of our being, particularly our bodies and minds? How are we affected by the fall? I have suggested that the scriptures describe us as a uh, multi-part being, with each part interacting with the other, affecting and affecting the others. If that is true, then our sin must have also adversely affect our mind and our body. Plainly, the Bible teaches us that we are fully defiled by sin and caught in what some theologians call today total depravity, see Romans 3.12. Yet the church emphasizes the spiritual effects of sin while minimizing our, or disregarding the mental and physical effects. I believe that this is a result from a misunderstanding of what the scripture has taught us about how we have been created. As we grow and mature, our body and mind learn to interact with and react to our fallen environment, all the while spiritually separated from God by our sin. The body, physically affected by the fall, gathers sensation and stimuli from the earthly environment. Our mind, knowing only sin because of the separation from God, chooses to satisfy itself by its, if it feels good, do it lifestyle or what psychologists call the pleasure principle. Relationally, we are egocentric and selfish, thinking only of ourselves. We choose to sin in our mind, 2 Corinthians 10.5, and with our body, Ephesians 2.3, or our members, Romans 7.23. We act out our sinful thoughts. This process is altered only by the individual who comes to struggle with the sinfully programmed mind and body, Romans 7, 14 through 25. In addition to sinful desires that attempt to control us, another result of of sin is physical death and decay. God told Adam that in the day he ate from the forbidden tree, he would surely die, Genesis 2, 16 through 17. And while he certainly meant this in a spiritual sense, he also meant this in a physical sense. The moment Adam disobeyed, he began to age and decay, Genesis 3.19. Physical death came a little closer each day of his life, and so it continues for us. In fact, the scripture tells us that or tells us that the whole of the physical creation was affected by our sin and longs for the day of redemption, Romans 8, 19 through 22. Our bodies are damaged because of sin. We age, we get sick, we suffer physically and die because physical creation has been affected by the fall. However, we were all born dead to sin, which damaged us physically, mentally, spiritually, and relationally. This is an amazing truth for those who have been born again. We are a new creation in Christ. The old things have passed away and the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Have you ever thought about what it means um, that you are a new creation? It means that you have been fundamentally changed. What you were before becoming a Christian no longer exists. That is not how I used to see myself, Matthew Stanford says. I lived Sunday to Sunday, holding on to some kind of faith-based fire insurance that I could turn in at my death in order to get into heaven. He certainly didn't see himself as Paul describes the believer in Ephesians 1, having every spiritual blessing. He now recognizes that as a believer in Christ, he is an adopted son of the living God. He is purchased out of slavery to sin and death, forgiven of all past sin, present 
and given spiritual wisdom, revelation, and marked as such until the day that he stands before him holy and blameless. Do you see yourself that way? If you believe in Jesus, then that is exactly how he sees you, whether you accept it or not. It doesn't matter if you are struggling with mental illness. You are a new creation in Christ. If you have received him, you've been baptized, you've been filled with the Holy Ghost. And we who minister to those who struggle with mental illness should remember that they are his chosen children. If they are in Christ, they should be treated as such. We were born with fallen nature, which we received from our ancestral father, Adam. But when a person comes to faith in Jesus, they are crucified. The old self is nailed to the cross with Christ, never to return. Romans 6, 6 and Galatians 2, 20. God gives us his spirit. Christ's very life takes up residence in us. Colossians 3, 1 and 5. We have his righteousness, 1 Corinthians 1, 30, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, Philippians 3, 9, and a new Christ-like nature in Ephesians 4, 24. Spiritually, we sit at the right hand of God Almighty, Ephesians 2, 6. So just like my friend said, as believers, we are complete in Christ, having everything we need for life and godliness in him, 2 Peter 1, 3. That is true in the spiritual realm, but remember that we are a unity of parts. What happens to our body, mind, and relationships after we are transformed in the spirit. Being conformed to the image of Christ. We were born affected by sin, and we lived some period of time before coming to Christ. Consequently, we have habits, thoughts, patterns and biological predispositions that are the result of our old self. The sinful flesh does not disappear because we have been given a new life, but change is now possible whereas before it was not. The scripture teaches us that we are to submit ourselves to Christ through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, allowing him to transform our minds. Romans 12, 1 through 2. As our minds are transformed and our thoughts are taken captive to Christ, he begins to take control of the members of our body and changing our behavior and transforming our relationships. Colossians 3, 5 through 10. Both believers and non-believers carry the physical, mental, and relational effects of sinful programming. Fortunately for believers, we have been transformed spiritually and are righteous before their maker. But that does not instantaneously remove the sin uh, sinful flesh we still carry around. Sanctification is a process by which our minds are transformed through submission to Christ. Biological defects and weaknesses do not go away by themselves. No matter how much we want them to or have faith, they will. God can certainly choose to heal us supernaturally, and in some cases he does, but we can embrace our weakness as an opportunity to grow in our faith. 2 Corinthians 12, 7-10 James 1, 2-4 Like the man born blind, we are all flawed so that the works of God can be, God might be displayed in us. John 9-3 through 3. Now we are in chapter 2. The Adversary I have a bipolar disorder and I was counseled by a pastor who suggested that I was possessed by demons. Sherry, um, diagnosed with bipolar disorder, states it is easy to understand how people of faith who believe in the fall, in fallen angels might attribute the bizarre thoughts and behaviors of an individual with mental illnesses to be the demonic, especially when religious delusions or hallucinations are present. A man with a paranoid schizophrenia shot and killed a retired policeman in Florida. At his murder trial, the man testified that he had to kill the victim, believing the retired policeman was the Antichrist because of the University of Alabama A on his baseball cap. Many know of the Texas case of Andre Yates, who in delusion, a delusional state drowned her five young children saying that she wanted to protect them from going to hell. You may also be familiar with the tragic story of Sister Marcia Cornici. I probably said her name wrong, but we're not gonna we're not gonna dwell on that. <laughs> In June 2005, Sister Irene 
A 23-year-old Romanian Orthodox nun died of dehydration and suffocation following an exorcism ritual at the Holy Trinity Covenant in the northeast Romanian village of Tanaku. She had been gagged with a towel and chained to a cross for several days without food or water during the ritual led by Daniel, a monk who served as, at the coven, Covenant's priest and four nuns prior to coming to the convent. Sister Irene had been treated by a psychiatrist for schizophrenia. Shortly before her death, she had begun hearing voices again, which she believed were the devil telling her that she was sinful. Irene's brother asked the priest to perform the exorcism ritual because he did not believe the medical treatment was working. When asked by a reporter at his trial whether Sister Irene was mentally ill and in need of psych psychiatric treatment, Father Daniel replied, you can't drive the devil out of people with pills. God has performed a miracle for her family. Finally, Irene is delivered from evil. The Romanian Orthodox Church condemned the ritual as abominable and excommunicated the priests and the four nuns who assisted him. In February 2007, Father Daniel and the nuns were convicted of causing the death of, the, of Irene and given a lengthy prison sentence. These are truly tragic events, but are they the work of demons? Satan and demons. As a clinical neuroscientist and a Christian, I am often asked a question concerning mental disorders and matters of faith. One of the most common questions I am asked re regards the role of the demonic in mental illness. While you imagine, uh, while you may imagine that this is not an easy question to answer, it may it made even more. It is made even more difficult by the fact that typical believers view Satan and the demonic has been influenced more by Frank Peters novels and movies like The Exorcist than by the Bible. My goal in this chapter is to stay true to the biblical test and simply ask, what does the Bible say about the demonic and how might they relate to mental illness? The name Satan comes from the Hebrew word um, Satan, that means the adversary, the accuser, or the opponent. The term devil, diablos, sometimes used to refer to Satan in the New Testament, is from the Greek and means slanderer, traitor, or false accuser. Satan is a minor figure in the Old Testament, mentioned explicitly in only three passages, 1 Chronicles 21.1, Job 1-2, and Zechariah 3, 1 through 2. He is also seen in Genesis 3, where he is referred to as the serpent. In comparison, Satan and his demonic cohorts are much more prominent in the New Testament. The New Testament writers use a number of different terms to refer to Satan. Recognizing that we have a limited set of verses that refer to Satan, what can we know for sure? First, we know from the biblical text that Satan is a living, conscious being. He is not a symbolic personification of evil in the world. In the prologue to the book of Job, Satan questions Job's allegiance to God. And in the Gospel of Luke, he asks to attack Peter, Luke 22:31. In the Gospel of John, he is said to have desires to speak lies and to have an evil nature, John 8:44. And in 2 Corinthians, we are told that he can disguise himself as an angel of light, 2 Corinthians 11, 13-15. These are the actions of consciousness being, of a conscious being, not a symbolic representation. Second, Isaiah 14, 12-15, Ezekiel 8, 12-19, which pertain to the kings of Babylon, uh, and Tyree respectively seem to point beyond their immediate context to a scene in which a magnificent angelic being, Satan, chooses to rebel against God and as a result was cast out of heaven. See also Matthew 25, 41. Given that Satan is a fallen angel, it is important for us to understand that he is a created being. While his power in human terms may appear awesome, it is insignificant in comparison to the power of God the Creator. Jesus refers to Satan as the evil one, Matthew 13, 19, and tells us that he has an evil nature and that he is a murderer, 
and that he is the father of lies, John 8:44. Even though he has been cast out of heaven, Satan continues to plot and scheme against God by attacking the ones he loves. 2 Corinthians 2 10 through 11, Ephesians 6, 11 through 12, and 1 Peter 5 and 8. Satan's goal is to disrupt or limit the relationship God has offered us. Mark 4, 15. Satan is not alone in his evil mission. He is assisted by an army of fallen angels. The scripture commonly refers to as demons. Matthew 8, 31, James 2, 19, and Revelations 18, 2. The work of Satan and demons, as described in the Bible, includes deception and false teaching, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 and 1 Timothy 4, 1, hindering prayer, Daniel 10, 12, and 13, and causing human affliction and torment, Matthew 17, 14 through 18, Mark 5, 1 through 5. Satan is also referred to as the ruler or prince of this world, John 12, 31, 14, and 30 and 16 and 11. God originally gave Adam and Eve dominion over the world in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. But they um, advocated that role when they sinned. This fallen world is so contrary to God because of Satan's control. Ephesians 2, 2, 6, 12, and 1 John 3, 19. A final characteristic the scripture teaches us about Satan is perhaps the most important. He was defeated by Christ's death and resurrection. Hebrews 2:14, 1 John 3 and 8. Satan is defeated is a defeated foe, and as children of the living God, we must recognize that and face and and understand that truly greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. John 4 and 4. Deception. Jesus tells us that Satan is the father of lies and that deception is his very nature. John 8:44. The demonic forces in opposition to the people of God would like nothing better than for you to believe a lie. Satan uses deception to keep non-believers from seeing the truth of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4:4 4, 4, and Revelation 13:14. And to draw us into sin, Genesis 3:13. The scriptures tell us that a false teaching is another form of demonic deception Satan uses to alter the truths of God, Colossians 2, 8, and 1 Timothy 4 and 1. We know that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, 2 Corinthians 11, 14, from the purpose of making people believe that his deception is a message from God himself. To recognize the extent and seriousness of demonic deception in our world, we need to look no further than many false religions and cults that blind the minds of millions from seeing the light of the gospel. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. John 14:6. It is our abiding in the truth of Christ and staying in his word that helps shield us from being drawn away by demonic deception. John 8, 31 through 32. Accusation. I mentioned earlier that Satan is explicitly referred to in the Old Testament only three times. In two of those references, he is standing before the Lord accusing one of God's faithful of sin, Job 1 through 2 and Zechariah 3, 1 and 2. Satan is referred to as the accuser of the brethren, Revelations 12, 10. One aspect of demonic accusation is what we see in Job and Zechariah. Satan continually stands before the throne of God in a court-like setting and accuses each believer of being sinful and unworthy of God's affection. Thanks be to God that we have the advocate within the Father. Hebrews 7.25 and 1 John 2.1 Who counters who counters every satanic accusation and promises us that there is no condemnation for those who are in him, Romans 8 and 1. A second aspect of demonic accusation is unyielding guilt over the past sins and failures. When by faith we received Christ in our lives, we were instantly forgiven of all of our sins. But how often have you felt unforgivable? How often have you thought that because you still have sin in your life, God could not possibly love you? Those thoughts are examples of demonic accusation. 
Satan would like nothing more than for us to believe that we are not forgiven, that Christ's sacrifice somehow was not sufficient. By redirecting our attention onto our past sins and failures, Satan is able to affect the level of intimacy in our relationship with the Father. We must accept God at his word that indeed Christ's sacrifice was sufficient and that we are completely forgiven. Acts 10.43 and Ephesians 1.7, Hebrews 10.16-18. If we do fall into sin, we know that the disharmony in our relationship with the Father that comes as a result can be rapid through or repaired through repentance. 1 John 1 9. Infirmity. The types of demonic attacks I have discussed thus far are all mental in nature, meaning by or meaning they have with or they happen within the mind. Infirmity or sickness is a physical form of demonic assault. You may be asking yourself, is he suggesting that Satan and demons can make us sick? The scriptures do give several examples of individuals suffering with sickness or physical disabilities attributed to actions of the demonic. Demonic attack. Most believers would likely agree with what I have just stated. The nature of Satan is not something that is usually argued among Christians. What often is hotly debated within the church, however, is the topic of demonic attack. How exactly does Satan and his demonic angels affect and influence human thoughts, behavior, and circumstances? What can they do? What are their limitations? Satan is an evil being, full of rage and jealousy toward God. He would like nothing better than to overthrow God and place himself in power as the ruler of the universe. But because Satan is a created being, limited in his power, and God is the almighty, eternal, sovereign king, Satan can do nothing directly to God. So he chooses instead to attack humanity, the beloved creation of the one he hates. The goal of all demonic attack is to turn a person's thoughts and behaviors away from Christ and toward self and sin. The scripture describes five ways by which Satan and his demonic angels attack humans. Temptation, deception, accusations, infirmity, and possession. Temptation. To be tempted is to be tested. Temptation is a type of demonic attack all believers have personally have a personal knowledge of and struggle with daily. The most well-known temptation in the Bible is that of Jesus himself in Matthew 4, 1 through 11, Mark 1, 12 through 13, and Luke 4, 1 through 13. After fasting in the wilderness for 40 days, Jesus was hungry and, and in a physical and physically weakened state. That is when Satan usually attacks. He and his demonic cohorts are always looking to exploit our weakness by the physical or mental. Matthew 26, 4, uh, 41, 1 Corinthians 7, 5, and Ephesians 4, 26 through 27. Temptation may be direct or indirect. By direct, I mean that Satan or some demonic spirit purposely places before you an enticement meant to draw you into sin. It may be shopping and spending, drugs, or a beautiful woman at work, but the enticement is chose specifically for you and your unique set of weaknesses. An indirect temptation would be more gen general enticement than commonly presented to everyone in a given culture. For instance, pornography. These indirect temptations permeate, or permeate all cultures. Since Satan is the ruler of this world, but as in all things, God is a sovereign. God is sovereign over demonic temptation. He uses these opportunities of testing to grow our faith and draw us closer to Him. James 1, 2 through 4. He promised that He will not allow us to be tempted beyond our ability, to resist that He will provide or to resist and that he will provide a means of escape, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. So while Satan and his demonic cohorts may be actual agents of temptation in times of testing, we must recognize that it is God who is fully in control and working with us. The fourth example of demon possession is a secondary reference to an exorcism in Acts 19, 13 through 16. While Paul was in Ephesus, some Jewish exorcists apparently began using the name of Jesus to try to cast out demons. 
In one such instance, the seven sons of Jewish of a Jewish chief priest um, named Sceva tried to unsuccessfully cast out a demon of a man uh, by calling upon the upon Jesus whom Paul preaches. The demon responded through the man's voice, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? The demon-possessed man leaped on the brothers and beat all seven of them badly. If we compare these examples to those of the individuals who uh, demonically caused illnesses discussed earlier, we find a number of clear differences in examples of possession the demon spoke through the voice of the inhabited individual, which is not seen in those with an illness caused by an evil spirit. Unlike the sick who sought Jesus out for healing, the demon-possessed recognized Jesus as the Messiah and were fearful of him. Another difference not seen in the demonically infirmed is the presence of supernatural abilities. For example, two of the possessed individuals displayed superhuman strength while another had a psychic ability that allowed her to accurately predict the future. In addition, the gospel writers describe those with illnesses caused by demons as being healed by Jesus, while very different language is used to describe what occurs to the possessed. So it seems clear from these examples that biblical writers consider demon possession something uh, different from simple from a simple illness that resulted from a demonic influence we need to look at possession in a broader biblical context much like we need with demonically caused illnesses demon possession as i have defined it here is mentioned even fewer times in scriptures that individuals with illnesses caused by demons in fact we find no reference to demon possession outside of the um gospels matthew mark and luke and acts exorcism exorcism is not mentioned in any of the new testament letters suggesting that it may not have been an issue many people have wondered whether it is even possible for a believer to be demon possessed the scriptures give no example um, of demon possessed believers though two examples of believing individuals with demonically caused illnesses are described a crippled woman a righteous Jew, described by Christ as a daughter of Abraham in Luke 13, 10 through 16, and the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. It seems unlikely that Satan or any demon could take up residence in an individual who has been born again. The Bible tells us that our bodies are a temple of God indwelled by the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, and that greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world, 1 John 4, 4. These and many other verses suggest that demon possession of the believer is not possible since we are indwelled by the spirit of the sovereign creator who makes no room for darkness. 1 John 1 and 5. We find two examples in the Old Testament. Job and Saul. After receiving divine permission, Satan, ca uh, Satan causes Job to become ill. We read in 1 Samuel 16, 14 that an evil spirit tormented Israel's king Saul. While at the exact nature of the infirmity is unclear it has certainly caused him to suffer and behave violently at times first samuel 18 10 through 11. the new testament describes at least five instances in which jesus healed an individual whose sickness was a result of demonic influence in four of these individuals a mute man matthew 9 32 through 33 luke 11 14 a blind and mute man matthew 12 22 and Syrophoenician's daughter, Matthew 17, 14 through 18, Mark 9, 12 through 27, and Luke 9, 37 through 42. Jesus cast out an evil spirit resulting in their healing. In the fifth case, Jesus heals a crippled woman and then tells the, the crowd that Satan had caused the woman's 18-year-long condition, Luke 13, 10 through 16. What are we to make of this? I believe we should understand these cases just as they were presented. Demonic forces can do can and do cause individuals to become ill and disabled. But we also must consider this in a broader context. Four Gospels and the Book of Acts describe 31 specific instances of healing by Jesus or his apostles. Only five of those illnesses, all found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are said to have resulted from demonic influence.
So while Jesus and his apostles certainly did encounter demonically influenced illnesses, this appears to be less prevalent than what uh, we might refer to as a naturally occurring illness. In fact, the scriptures um, differentiate between natural illness and demonically caused infirmity. Matthew 8, 16, and Mark 1, 32-34. Although the gospel writers clearly blur the lines between the two and describe both as, a re- both as requiring healing, Matthew 4, 24, in addition, a number of other passages simply refer to Jesus or his disciples casting out demons without describing the nature of the individual's afflictions. Mark 1, through, uh, Mark 1, 39, Luke 4, 41, 8 and 2 and 13 and 32. In his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul describes being tormented by a thorn in the flesh that he says was a message messenger of Satan, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. While it is unclear what the exact nature of this thorn was, it is generally accepted that it was some type of physical illness given the Old Testament and the New Testament examples I have just described. It doesn't seem strange that Paul would have an illness resulting from demonic influence. But what is very different about this case is God's response. Paul says he prayed three times that God would remove the thorn, and God's response was, My grace is sufficient for you. Paul is told that this infirmity would be used in his life in such a way that Christ's power would be manifested and his faith would be perf- uh, perfect or perfected. Instead of healing Paul, God supplied him with sustaining grace so that he might endure this trial in his life. It is unclear from the scripture how one can differentiate between a natural illness and one caused by demonic influence. Since, as I mentioned earlier, the biblical writers very much blur the line as between the two, in both instances the afflicted person is described as requiring healing, and some relief seems possible through physical remedies, even even for demonically caused illnesses. We see that music was therapeutic in Saul's case in 1 Samuel 16.23, while Job found some relief by draining his boils, Job uh, 2.8. Through the biblical accounts, though the biblical accounts don't mention this, it is possible that Paul's relationship with Luke, a physician, may have resulted from Paul seeking treatment for his thorn in the flesh. In the end, the root cause of the infirmity doesn't seem to matter to the biblical authors as much as the fact that Christ is the sovereign God over illness, whether or not it has demonic origins. Acts 10.38 God is able to heal illness regardless of the cause, but in cases in which he chooses not to heal, he provides sustaining grace to those who turn to him. Possession Now we turn to a level of demonic attack that is quite controversial in the church today. Possession. First, let me define what I mean by demon possession. Demon possession occurs when an individual loses control of his or her mental uh, uh, facets to an evil spirit. In other words, the demon fully controls the person's thoughts and behaviors. The demonic control may occur intermittently or continually. We find two detailed examples of demon possession in the Gospels, while the book of Acts briefly describes a possessed slave girl who can predict the future and gives a secondary reference to a failed exorcism. The first example is described in both Mark 1, 21-28 and Luke 4, 31-37. Early in his ministry, Jesus was teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum, I probably said that wrong, but you get what I'm saying, and was confronted by a man with an unclean spirit. The demon recognized Jesus as the Holy One of God, and crying out in the, man, in the man's voice, asked if Jesus had come to destroy it. Jesus rebuked the evil spirit, and it came out of the man. The second example of demon possession is probably the most well-known, the story of Legion, Matthew 8, 28-34, Mark 5, 1-20, and Luke 8, 26-39. After crossing the Sea of Galilee and calming the storm, Jesus was immediately confronted by a man, two men in Matthew, who was said to be demon-possessed. This man is described as being naked, extremely violent, and possessing superhuman strength. The biblical accounts 
tell us that he lived among the tombs, cried out day and night, and cut himself with sharp stones. Similar to the first example of possession, the demons within this man recognized Jesus as the Son of the Most High God and were concerned that he had come to torment them. In a brief conversation between Jesus and the demon, we learned that the man was actually possessed by numerous demons who referred to themselves collectively as legion. With a simple command, Jesus cast out the demons, and they entered a herd of pigs that immediately rushed into the lake and drowned. While in Philippi, the apostle Paul and Silas encountered a slave girl possessed by an evil spirit that gave her the ability to predict the future, Acts 16, 16-19. She followed them around the city for several days, crying out, Those men are bond servants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Paul commanded the evil spirit in the name of Jesus Christ to leave the girl. The girl was freed and the, of the demon and lost her ability to tell the future. Demons in the 21st century. So where does that leave us today? Are demons still active? Do they play a role in mental illness? Three possibilities have been suggested to explain the level of demonic activity we see in scripture versus today. The first is that in biblical times, individuals were inclined to attribute to demons unusual behavior and untreatable illnesses that because of their a pre-scientific worldview and naive understanding of disease and mental illness could not otherwise be explained. While this was certainly true in some instances and still is, the problem is, or with this argument, is that it causes us to question Jesus' integrity and perhaps his divinity. Since he believed that demons were at work in specific examples, we have discussed a second possibility that has been suggested is that incidences of demon possession and infirmity were limited to biblical times and in the ministry of Jesus and the apostles. Again, there is usually some truth to this suggestion. Exorcism appears to have been a major component of Jesus' earthly ministry and clearly showed the sovereignty of the anointed Messiah and the coming kingdom of God over Satan's kingdom of darkness. However, the New Testament gives us no reason to believe that demonic attack would cease with the Apostle Age, but, in contrast, often speak of the evil schemes of Satan and his demonic cohorts toward the church, Ephesians 6, 11-12, and 1 Peter 5 and 8. A third possibility is that demonic infirmity and possession still occur today um, as much as they did in biblical times. The first question often asked when the possibility is suggested is, Why? Then does it appear from the scriptures that the demonic activity and possession and infirmity was common in biblical times and yet is not common today? We must remember that the Gospels did not consist of a moment-by-moment -moment account of Jesus, Jesus' life on earth, and any single event in the Gospel writers by divine inspiration choose to include may seem to occur frequently when in actuality it was quite uncommon. In comparison to natural illnesses, demonic infirmity and possession are rare in the biblical text and are not even mentioned in the majority of the scriptures. In addition, we must understand that demon possession is not possible for those who are born again, and the exorcism would not play a significant role in the church either today or in the first century. It is possible that demon possession does still occur today or in some non-believing individuals and is likely to be encountered in a missionary or evangelical setting, much like in Jesus' day. The simplest and most effective way to deal with or rule out demon possession would be to lead the individual to faith in Christ. I believe that demonically caused illnesses in contrast to possession does not or does commonly occur today in and out of the church. However, the difficulty, if not outright impossibility, of differentiating a demonically caused illness from a natural illness leads us to treat all sickness the same. The infirmed require healing, which may come through medical intervention or through an answer to healing prayer. In either case, healing is the focus rather than deliverance. What about mental illness? Mental disorders are complex states that result from an interaction of biology and environment. 
If we accept the argument that demons are presently active, then it is likely they are involved in some cases of mental illness. Demons are involved at many levels of our existence, and it certainly isn't necessary for demonic powers to purposely cause a given mental illness in a person for us to be able to say that they were involved in the disorder. As I said in chapter 1, we are born dead in our sins, and even after we are transformed in the spirit by faith, we still live in a body and have a mind that is corrupted by original sin. Satan was involved in that corruption, Genesis 3.13. The world in which we live is demonic and anything related to the world system has been tainted by his presence. John 12, 31, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. All mental disorders result from the interaction of biological and environmental factors. We have a bio, bio, biology that is broken because of sin and we live in an environment affected by the evil one. From this perspective, the demonic is involved in, in all illness including mental illness, at some level that uh, reality may be why the gospel authors so blurred the lines between natural illness and demonic infirmity. A Biblical Response to the Demonic The scriptures are quite clear on how we are to respond to the demonic powers. We are to pray, submit ourselves to God, and resist, stand against the devil. We are unable to stand against Satan in our own strength, but our response to the demonic is based on one absolute truth. God is sovereign. Through prayer, we are able to draw near to God and build an intimate relationship with Him. Mark 9, 21, Luke 22, 40, 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 9, James 5, 13 through 16. Through submission, we recognize that we are unable to accomplish anything apart from him in John 15, 5. He is our very life, and through submission, we allow his indwelling spirit to transform our mind and body. In their writings, Paul, James, and Peter call us to resist or stand against the devil, Ephesians 6, 10, James 4, 7, 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9. That stand is taken by faith through submission to God. Paul tells us that we are able to stand by putting on the full armor of God. Truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, and the word. Only by living our life in Christ are we able to stand against the devil because Jesus is the truth. John 14, 6. Our righteousness, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. The Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, 6. The Perfector of our faith, Hebrews 12, 2. The Author of our salvation, Hebrews 2, 10. And the Word made flesh, John 1, 14. Does a biblical response always result in exhaling from demonic powers? Can we use Paul's thorn as an example? Paul prayed three times and asked God to heal him, and the divine sovereign of the universe chose not to remove the thorn. Instead, he willed that the thorn be used to manifest Christ's power in Paul's life and to mature his faith, 2 Corinthians 12, 7-10. Our response to the demonic is simply to pray, submit to God, and to stand in Christ. Whether God chooses to heal us or to supply us with sustaining grace, we can rest in knowing He is sovereign over all things, including demons, and He cares for us. Thank you for tuning in this week. Um, I'm so glad that you have listened all the way to the end. Um, if you would like to comment or anything or anything at all, please message us or suggest like any of your suggestions. We love it. Um, it just message us on Instagram or you can email us. But thank you for tuning in this week to the study and we will see you in another week.